Today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Mir Beskan, a distinguished figure in psychological research, especially in the realms of memory and metamemory. Dr. Beskan's grand groundbreaking work has significantly advanced our understanding of how we perceive and predict our memory processes, particularly through our exploration of the perceptual fluency hypothesis. In today's episode, we are eager to explore Dr. Beskan's journey in science, her impactful research, and how our findings bridge the gap between its complex psychological theories and everyday understanding. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mir Beskan. students okay so typically you know like I do have a bunch of interests that relate to memory in general um, so we actually you know like try to like combine our like uh, different interests come together and in some way you know like try to come up with like topics that we can research together uh, we try to come up with uh, like questions that really interest us so that's the type of thing that we do. Um, in general, in terms of class environment, you know, like I try to make sure that the topics in some way relate to real life applications, right? Like, I mean, obviously the theory is very important. Understanding the normal like implications is important, but you know, like real life, how it actually occurs in your life is the thing that makes the difference in terms of like whether people will carry it forward to okay. their own life or not. Yeah. And uh, in the lectures, what is the um, what, is the, what are the things you do that are different that maybe uh, make students like you more? <laughs> I don't know if it's very different. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, it's been a while since I haven't seen one of our like professors like teach. Um, I think I think one of the things is like I do give a lot of like real life examples, yeah. and they usually relate to like relationships, right? <laughs> So when you do that, you know, like people are suddenly, you know, like, what's going on? You know, like, because technically, if you are looking at it, like, I have been teaching this learning, thinking, remembering class for many years now. And it's basically, you know, classical conditioning, open conditioning, right. you know, like, uh, you know, people say, oh, the Palos dog, like, well, how, how, how does it really, like, refer to our lives? But it does, it does, more than you think it does. So, like, once you put it into context for the students in terms of, like, uh, hey, look, like, you are doing the same thing, you are getting conditioned, like, half of our lives, 90% of our lives in autopilot, on autopilot, yeah. you know, like uh, so, social media and stuff nowadays. Yeah, 
definitely condition in your career there. Oh my god, like, yeah, yeah, like, I mean, you find yourself, like, uh, swiping through reels, like, for half yeah. an hour before you can get out of bed, right? <laughs> what, what happens? Like, because that, like, very little 15-second reel is actually giving you this boost of happiness for about a second, and, you know, like, social media is really... Um, savvy enough to get you captured like they find like they look at which ones you stay at longer yeah, yeah. and they keep on like giving you that type of content so you are stuck there looking at this like uh, stuck in your own loop kind of yeah. yeah yeah you are you are and it's yeah I mean like once, once you kind of like start doing all of these like giving these examples talking about how you know this is the case with the relationships like why they are here or where, why they are in class like at that moment that they are like <laughs> I keep on like asking students why are you here right now <laughs> and it's like it's all this like existential crisis I don't know <laughs> students like a little bit yeah, more like yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like whoa, they keep on wondering what is this woman going to tell us now <laughs> uh, since you mentioned this um, this awareness of the conditioning in social media I mean even when I'm scrolling I'm, I'm kind of realizing what I'm doing but I keep scrolling right so um, there is this kind of meta-awareness of what's going on, but you can't change it. Is that occurring in every aspect of the, I don't know, judgments? <laughs> That's a good question. Like I... biases, even if you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so technically, like one of the theoretical ways that we classify human behavior is like automatic versus controlled processes. Yeah. So when we are talking about like controlled processes, these are the things that you put your energy in. These are the things that you have to like spare your cognitive resources in. On the other hand, the automatic resources, the automatic processes are those that are like more like like a reflex, like conditioning in general. So like most of the time in our lives, like both of these like events are both online at the same time. Most of the time they do agree, but there are also instances in which they do not agree, right? Like, so your automatic, like you, I mean, let's think about phobias, for example. Like if you have say a phobia of cats, right? Like you might know, like cats are not that terribly like dangerous oh, yeah. on a very conscious level, mm -hmm. but uh, but like you cannot yeah, keep yourself from getting feeling. shaking, yeah. you know, like having all of these like fears coming up with irrational stuff. Like on a regular, uh, on a rational basis, of course you do know, mm -hmm. but on a like very primitive basis. You must have had some experience, like there might you might have like associated something, so like they are deep in your core and it's difficult to get rid of yeah. even if you know on a conscious level that this is the case, right? Yeah. Rationality so. is not is not the solver or is not really influencing some parts of the brain, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean like we do like function on both of the levels, right? Yeah. So like um so think about 
being attracted to somebody, yeah. right? So, like, I mean, part of it is the <laughs> fact that, like, you are attracted to this person, maybe they are familiar to someone that you know from your past, like, they might be, yeah. fam like, uh, familiar in terms of all the other relationships that you had, it might be the parents that they are alike, or, you know, like, there was something that is familiar, it doesn't have to be good, though, <laughs> like, yeah. it just needs to be familiar, so you get attracted to this person, there mm -hmm. It also be you know like they also claim that uh, maybe sometimes it's the genes like pheromones you are uh, getting attracted to all of this like smells like right. gene like differences in between like make you more attracted to each other because like you want to have like help there is all these like uh, theories like what seems to be about subconscious or uncontrolled. unconscious yeah. unconscious uncontrolled processes so like this yeah. is one part though but like when you are talking about uh, like relationship it's partly that attraction mm -hmm. but there's also the lifelong compatibility or like compatibility on a regular basis like do, do, yeah. can you communicate with this person do you understand this person do you have different similar types of lives similar types of friends can you be interested in things like could you possibly have any chance of making it with this person right yeah. but you know like sometimes you know your heart is a little bit further away from your rational mind which thinks of the compatibility yeah. you fall love with somebody and you're like I don't like them but I love them <laughs> how is that possible so part of it is possibly this familiarity that you feel like at your very core um, and then like uh, I mean uh, you know like what happens is like uh, uh, so like let's say that like you decide oh I cannot be with this person this is not good for me and then like at some point you go and drink a couple of beers your inhibition is gone your primitive self is out there to yeah. drunk text this person <laughs> in the middle of the night right so that's part of it too so I mean like these these two levels do not always like agree with each other when they do it's lovely mm -hmm. but like one of for example your like more like problem solving skills like complex mind that acts on rationality might even rationalize the like primitive like part of you like can work to do that you know so uh, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult like process to take into consideration yes. and uh, the another problem with this this thing is it seems like the process is actually reversed we feel like we we can control with our rationality but actually what controls rationality is the the part that's that we are that we are unaware of because usually the, the in the cases I see people do stuff then they rationalize yeah then then they come up with the rational explanation that why they do this or feel like this or yeah actually both work both ways so right like I mean part of it is like you do this like stupid thing and rationalize it uh, yeah. because it's familiar because it's like feels right like yeah. that's what you think is like what your gut is telling you which yeah. is like your conditioning basically but like sometimes also like very simple things 
you cannot really decide on because you know like it's just like your cognitive part is like overthinking all of these issues sometimes too so like I mean it goes both ways like you sometimes overthink a very simple problem just because you like have been doing this specific problem in a certain way when a simple problem that can be solved in a very simple manner you don't do that because like you have been over working your cognitive side too much or like more effortful side so much yeah exactly and uh, since we are at the topic of conditioning I gotta ask uh, there are a lot of I don't know uh, schools of thought in psychology like behavioral cognitive this that like how do you dis- distinguish those and do you see some sort of the best or I don't know what do you think about this really um, the branches of psychology uh, it feels like it shouldn't be this many but it is and there are cases where they work which I understand but yeah, yeah. I mean technically you know um, so there is like a historical process through which all of this happens so like if you are looking at like psychology is still pretty young in terms of like when it was born, like when the first uh, lab was established, yeah. uh, end of 1800s, I think, like 19th yeah. century. So, like uh, from then on, you know, like they tried looking into the person, and then like they were like, oh no, like we cannot look into the person; they are too subjective, they are too different. Let's just look at behavior, and then like no, no, no. Uh, like if we are looking at behavior but not looking at the mind processes that's a problem and then like comes like all of this like brain imaging technology or well, now we can look into the brain but does it really like correlate with the mind so there's all of these questions that are going about um, I mean, I actually, you know, like, um, have been trained in cognitive psychology, like classical cognitive psychology, which looks at behavior, and then you try to make inferences about the causes of that behavior, how the system works. like my cognitive neuroscientist like colleagues are looking at it at a like brain level analysis like they are looking at biological parts how it correlates with that um i think part of it depends on like what question you are asking so like for me how the system works and like uh, why it works the way it does is more important so like I'm still looking at this behavior and trying to understand it at a like theoretical level in yeah. general, which is the cognitive like tradition in general. Um, there are many different theories, obviously. Um, I don't know. I mean, like again, like it depends on what question you are asking. So, for example, you know, like if you are trying to understand like a person at a basic process level mm-hmm. maybe you know like looking at cognition is better but at a real life level the person is coming like if you're a therapist mm-hmm. just looking at this like very specific this is the stimulus this is the response this is what's yeah. happening in between may not necessarily be you know 
of like so sometimes maybe looking at the past like what were your previous conditionings what were your previous learnings what triggers your behavior looking at it like I mean you still need to understand all of this like uh, stimulus and response like uh, contingency in general but you also have to understand this unique person yeah. at a unique level like what was the experience of this person and like what is it that this person wants to change what is it that like triggers this person what makes yeah. them tick yeah. right so um, I mean obviously like for my own experiments I do very behavioral very cognitive stuff mm -hmm. but at a you know like um therapy level I think like bringing in all of these like uh, trains of thought that actually you know like try to make a person understand the person from a humane perspective is important and with all the dimensions I guess yeah, yeah yeah also you know like I mean obviously like I mean I also believe in science obviously so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like evidence-based stuff it becomes important right like I mean you kind of want to have okay this is something that works or like this is something that doesn't seem to be very you know effective in this so for example if you are looking at phobias systematic desensitization and exposure therapy seem to work really well yeah. but you know like if you are looking at like uh, you know p uh, problems with like in a relationship like looking at like cognitive behavioral therapy in terms of like this exposure therapy is not gonna do anything if you are looking at depression that's not like there might be different approaches that also work with different problems that people have to so okay so kind of a politically correct answer that you gave so i'm gonna ask this <laughs> uh, uh, do you anticipate them coming together at some point all of the schools of thought all of the branches like research for a theory of everything in physics but should, could that be in psychology as well i just listened to a talk about this like a couple of days ago it yeah. seems unlikely to me honestly <laughs> um, why not uh, we were too far away from that place. I mean, the only thing that I can think of that seems to make sense in most like stuff, like in most like cognitive processes, seems to be this effortful versus automatic like part of things, like with perception, with cognition, like memory, with problem solving, with decision making. Some of the stuff is automatic, some of the stuff is effortful. So Daniel Kahneman actually like defines it as system one, system two. Like some other theorists look at it as effortful automatic, some other theorists. But I mean, other than that, like it feels difficult. So like even within memory, like which is my area of <coughs> expertise, you do not find this like one theory that seems to explain only like long-term memory processes like even like long-term memory like it's not even the full memory <laughs> and uh, there are all these like um, at the beginning of like 2000s 2005 2010 like somewhere around there mm -hmm. Rodiger who is a very like well-known um, researcher in memory he was saying why there will be no laws of memory right and it was like 
Yeah, like whatever you find with one situation seems to fail with the other type of memory that you have. So um, you might be having like multiple systems or multiple way of processing information. The the general theory, like having a theory such as like the Gestalt psychologist did, or like Freud's theory of psychoanalytic, like. Um, psychoanalytic theory is, is like, it feels a little bit too ambitious to me like and while we are trying to explain all of this yeah. you usually you lose your ability to refute because you are uh, trying yes. to explain you everything and, yeah, right. yeah, you are trying to fit it into all of the data but there will be a lot of noise sometimes you won't know yeah. like you won't know maybe it's a non-result maybe it's like a result that is really weak like when you try to fit it to all of the data you lose your ability to do the science in the way that it should be done yeah yeah so yeah I don't I don't I mean (laughs) I'm not sure that you could be able to create this like or it wouldn't be like the work of one person like you we will need like 200 more years like 300 more years yeah (laughs) (laughs) right yeah Um, you refer to a person saying uh, memory can't be found out or i don't know can you explain that further uh i mean in general so the idea is that like uh, you cannot have any. I mean, uh, is there a law of memory? So that was the. the what the, are they referring there by law of memory? I mean, like the whole the idea of determining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. for example, you know, like when we are defining memory, we are defining it in different ways, right? Like, so we have all of these phenomena, uh, like testing effect, generation effect, you know, like uh, self-reference effect. Um, you know, like we. So these are long-term memory phenomena but then like when you are talking about long-term memory you have like more conscious way of dealing with memory like where people are intentionally recalling back information versus like when they are not really intentionally recalling information so classical conditioning is one version of it priming which is like your ability to get faster when you have been presented with related material like is another one Um, your procedural knowledge so the things that you know to do like walking talking uh, like playing any kind of sports like dancing playing an instrument so all of these things that are done with muscles most of the time like this is the information that you use without even realizing you are using so like even within those like uh, like you do find a lot of differences so if you are for example looking at amnesic patients usually their ability to 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 like uh, for their implicit memory this non-declarative unconscious memory stays intact even when like you cannot consciously recall this information so there is this like really famous case of Ajam Hmm. Ajam is this guy uh, who was having all of these like seizures throughout his young adulthood so 
the doctor said, okay, like it seems to be caused by this medial temporal lobe like electrical activity. What we'll do is like we will surgically remove the medial temporal lobe of this person. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see so what happens. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the results were not, I mean, he never had seizures. <laughs> the problem though, like, was not able to form any new long-term memory so like wow. anything that happened after the surgery and even like a little bit before the surgery he doesn't like consciously recall back right yeah. so he's not able to have this like conscious recall of information but if you teach him any kind of like procedure so like there was this like mirror drawing task so like you don't there is a mirror right in front of you and like uh, and you cannot see your own hand you have to draw the figure on the paper by just looking at the mirror obviously when you are doing that everything needs to be done in the opposite manner right so initially it's a difficult task to do but like once you learn you can get better at it yeah, as time passes so for example for HM like these experimenters are coming in every day like he's doing this like mirror drawing task right and then like uh, you know after a while he actually got much faster much more efficient like much better and like to the extent that like when these people came like he would be just sitting there like going in front of the mirror and start drawing these figures in a very you know like non-flexible manner but then like you ask him hey like how did you learn about this and he has no idea <laughs> I just do I just do like yeah and like you do see this like pattern with a lot of um, like amnesic patients uh, like e- so like what they try to do again like they are okay on the level of habits so if you can you can still establish habits for these people and because you can establish those habits like they can do the same thing in the same way over and over again it's just that like they don't remember it and if you ask them their muscles so good yeah 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 they and but also, like, if you ask them to change the task, they cannot so flexibly do that. So, again, it's like automatic wow. processing, habit formation, you know, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, very approach with one theory in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And do you think memory can't be, um, can't have a low one now? Uh, yeah, again, like, it's the problem of refutation, right? Like, I mean, like, the, if you are trying to fit all of the data into this one theory, you are going to make too many assumptions about the theory. You think memory is also like that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you have been doing many, um, many experiments in cognitive psychology about memory. Do you use it in the class as well to teach the students better to make better memory <laughs> formations? I try, I try. I don't know like how successful I am at that. Like, I mean, there are things, uh, yeah, I try. I mean, one of the things I do is, I mean, I think the way that memory works the best is like, if you are learning a new piece of information, 
uh, like you have to integrate it with what you already know. Yeah. Okay. So like every single time, like I'm teaching a new concept, there is this like integration with what the students already know, mm -hmm. like uh, coming up with examples. And that's what you refer to as real world applications. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they all get to the same thing in the end. But the thing is, you know, like memory works the best if the students try right like so if yeah. they put in the effort again like it turns out that you know like they keep on asking me hey like is there a magical way as to how i can like uh, i mean my answers are so typical so boring in general <laughs> sleep well pay attention eat well <laughs> do physical exercise so like for the old for example, the thing that seems to make them like uh, have better memory or like better cognitive functioning uh, is like their level of physical activity. Like so, like the mind is working on a physical basis. Like you cannot really completely. Very very recently, I've seen something that says even um, misremembering something is a like, the more forgettable the person is, smarter he is, that there is this new, I don't know, new article that I've seen. And, oh. yeah, it says something similar to this, at least. Do you have any idea about that? I don't, like, can you give me, like, um, It's like, not, not amnesia cases, but um, when you compare a normal person with a smart person, Apparently, there seems to be they smarter people seem to be more forgetful. Ha! Huh. Which is yeah. You know what it might be. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know the like root of like like origin, yeah. like what where it comes from. But like, when you are thinking about. I mean, I also don't like the idea of like smart versus normal <laughs> person oh, yeah, all yeah. that much. <laughs> uh, because I mean, I do Probably think that people. IQ, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I mean, that, that doesn't feel right. Also, like, people do have like different talents, like in different yeah, yeah, areas yeah. and stuff. I but I mean, I think the idea is like, if you are talking about, you know, like people being more forgetful about what, again, like there's also that. Yeah. Uh, so are you like absent-minded in your real life, but like you are remembering all of the theories that you need, you really need. Um, so, you know, like uh, we have a math professor in Bikant, like uh, he always keeps on telling me, I know none of the formulas. I need to reconstruct them every time I go to the board. <laughs> so the idea is that do you have the tools to be able to like reconstruct this? So what might be happening is that like you know some very specific rules that will allow you to reconstruct that like specific facts later on in a reasonable way. Uh, so that might make you more capable, like smart, or whatever you want to call it, you know, like in terms of, but, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not exactly sure that, about that the... That makes the, a lot of sense, though. I mean, it would explain a lot, I guess. Um, also, the next question, um, you have been following the career path in psychology quite a while now, right? Um, 
I think you never diverged. <laughs> no, I never did. <laughs> oh, I had like one year of market research experience, <laughs> which wasn't for me. <laughs> But I was always in psychology. Yeah. Which part of the career you enjoyed the most and why? Uh, I I think I do enjoy all. Like, I mean, I know it's, it's a stupid <laughs> thing to say, but like, it's a very, again, like, boring thing to say. Uh, so, I mean, like, for one thing, like, okay, so, like, because of my, like, six-month or eight-month long market research experience, uh-huh. I knew that I wouldn't be part of the corporate life in, mm-hmm. in a way. Because I felt that like you cannot ask your own questions, right? Like you are under the like control, uh, control of somebody who you might not really agree with, who you cannot deal with, like who you do not find to be inspiring, whatever it is. Like it might be sometimes like very um, like uninspiring for me. And I so one part of the thing that I liked about doing research was the fact that like I on a very small scale I was able to control my own life right like so I can ask whatever question I like obviously you know when you are in your doctoral degree when you are doing your master's degree you need to be in line with your professors like general topic of interest but I mean we were we were doing long-term memory but the idea that like you are able to ask the question that you want to ask is something very like important to me essential and then like you are able to follow up on it you know like through years through different projects through different understandings and like I mean even the fact that you can refute your own like findings later on hey like this doesn't work in this like area and being able to draw these boundaries in terms of like what's is known, what is not known, how much you can know, is, is a lovely thing. And I mean, while you are creating this, you are coming up with creative ways, right? Like, it's, it's not like you have like one way of doing, solving yeah, you a problem. You can play around and have fun, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the second thing about the research is like you are collaborating with people, you are sharing ideas, you are, you know, like uh, thinking about like what you can do, what you cannot do, like you keep on like, uh, oh, this will not work, this will work, hey, let's like borrow this like specific paradigm from perception, let's borrow this paradigm from decision making, whatever it is, you are borrowing all of these paradigms and putting them together in a very original way. So. That makes the research part fantastic. Now, from the teaching part, again, I mean, the idea of being able to share this knowledge, right? Yeah, and share um, ideas. Share ideas, like, yeah. um, I mean, I don't love the grading part. <laughs> that seems to be one. <laughs> that seems to be the one thing that I don't really like about my job. But otherwise, in general, and I mean, also. Um, There is something about young people, like that, like the fact that you can actually point. I mean, again, it will be them who will need to figure it out. But like, you suddenly sometimes see their eyes light up during class time. It's like all of the stuff that I was thinking 
Gabbard. <laughs> suddenly it all comes into like some kind of understanding and you understand that they understand. And that's like a lovely, very satisfactory feeling to have, you know, like being, and you do learn from them a lot too, right? And the energy, like the level of energy that like younger people have uh, keeps me young, honestly, like, I mean, I, so, so, so I do, I do, like, most parts of my job in general. Except grading. Grading. Yeah, <laughs> administrative stuff is not lovely either, but. Which one of these have you struggled with the most? Undergrad, grad, I don't know, PhD, research? Which one? Have you struggled with the most? Oh, um, let me just think. Uh, what do you mean in terms of struggle? Um, I don't know. Thinking about quitting with oh. reverse. I don't know. Oh, uh, during my PhD, there was a time I was like pretty low on my resources. So, like you know. Uh, so I went to the States, having already completed my master's. During the first two years, you know, I was doing research with my uh, advisor. You know, like I was doing what you know he he was like an expert in. Like we were working together, all of this stuff. And then, like there came a time where I had to determine like my PhD topic, right? Yeah. And that was difficult because. You feel like you have a lot of options, but then you want to be able to use your advisor's expertise and they are telling you, hey, I can only, you know, like, advise you on these, these, these yeah. topics. But then, like, you have so many questions, but it is difficult to, you know, like, uh, bring them together. You know, like, one of the loveliest things about cognitive psychology is that, like, you compete different you pit theories against each other, right? I mean, that's the most lovely thing, but, you know, on a theoretical basis, you can do that, but like when you put them into action, it's difficult. And uh, so like that time when I was like trying to figure out this question, it was a difficult time. Like I was not as, uh, quick as I would like to be, like I was, I felt stuck. Okay. Um, so yeah. what did you need there to like, if if you could advise someone who is right now in this situation, what would you say? Give it time. I mean, hopefully ah. <laughs> you do have time. Like and like read a lot. Like I mean uh, and try to and just realize that like by doing a PhD thesis you are not going to save the world. I mean, I hope you do, I hope you do. <laughs> but like what you are gonna do is like contribute just a little bit of more knowledge. It doesn't have to be the, your biggest project, your biggest success in life. Like there will be other projects through which you will be yeah. able to like solve many more problems. Take your time and don't rush. Don't rush. I mean, again, like you are sometimes limited by <laughs> programs like left. Yeah, yeah. uh, but you know, like try to give it time to come up with like a sound question mm-hmm. and be able to come up with like a design, take advice, 
uh, get support from your friends, like or like family, or you know, like significant others, yeah. uh, because you know, like you cannot really do this alone all the time. Like you, yeah. you need others, like to help you emotionally, support you emotionally. Uh, and you basically throw yourself out there with your idea and you project it to the whole world and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another little part that was difficult for me was like right as I was, uh, as I finished my PhD. So like around that time, like the economic crisis in the States was still sort of like going on or persevering in terms of like faculty jobs, like uh, postdocs and all of that. So, uh, you know, like you do apply to so many jobs. And like you don't even get like, and they they ask you they ask you to like send in all of these documents, uh, yeah. and that needs to be like tailored to those like departments, those universities. So like you research 60, 70 positions, and like your advisors, your recommenders send all of these recommendation letters, and you don't even get a response. <laughs> like that's. That part was the thing that wore me down the most, like... Yeah, because it's basically meaningless, all, all the work you do is, yeah. I mean, that's what you... It's not meaningless, it's just, like, so difficult, and I was lucky, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, like, think about this, like, as an advisor, you, like, uh, I mean, my advisor from PhD probably, like, graduated so many PhD students, there is no chance that all of these people can go into academia, right? Uh, yeah. So, like, it's a prison scheme in some way. <laughs> so, uh, you don't always have the chance, like, you don't always, um, you are not guaranteed that, like, you are going to be an academic. Uh, yeah. Um, but if you really want to be an academic, how long do you persist in like doing that? Yeah. Um, so that was a very difficult period. I'm not gonna lie. Like uh, being able to find a job like that, you know, that was good enough. Uh, that was actually like giving me satisfaction. I mean, I was like, do I go into industry? Yeah. Like. I have like a very specific set of skills, like what type of industry do I go into? Uh, I mean, you do have all of these like presentation skills, you do have the um, like uh, ability to write, ability to ask questions, ability to think critically, like all of these are like assets, but when you are you coming... You didn't do that in the industry yet, so yeah, I understand what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's going to be yeah. difficult for anyone who is actually looking for a PhD degree, actually, I'm not gonna lie. So, um, if you went into industry, what would you do? Oh, what would I do? Uh, I would still do, like, teach, learning, teaching research, I think. Like, uh, I, I do really like it. Um, so, you know, like, how can you actually educate people to educate others? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of funny, though. Like, I mean, if you're, like, thinking about the education of teachers, education of professors, university professors, we are never given any education about how to educate others. There is no pedagogy, there is no, like, uh, they don't tell you how to teach. Yeah, there is supposed to be meta-teaching. 
definitely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, you never get it. Like, but I mean, so, so it's like. It's an intuitive thing to do, but there, sh- yeah, there should still be some sort of education or some sort of test at least to yeah. like, make them better or on age. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think I would I would like to do that. I don't know. I mean, the problem is this. Like, uh, so you know, as a professor, you teach your students in a certain way, and if it works, at least it works for some of the students. You kind of like accept. Okay, so this is working. I'm gonna keep it. You get all of these evaluations, but the evaluations might not necessarily always matter either. Oh, yeah. So the How problem is, I mean, if it's like a well thought out like evaluation, I will consider it no problem. But students, I mean, as a researcher of memory, I know that like people do not really have a good idea of how much they have learned. Yeah, okay. uh, so, so like sometimes, you know, like, I don't take them seriously to the same extent. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, if you are telling me something very specific about my teaching, I'll be happy to consider it. But if you are telling me that I'm not grading you right, like that, that I'm too strict in grading, I don't know. Like, the problem is this. Like, uh, so part of the reason that people might think that you are strict in grading is because they don't really know the topic and they don't know how they don't know, right? Yes. So, like, they think That's that they deserve this uh, grade, but it's like, no, you don't have these, like, critical terms that need to be there that were, like, really emphasized yeah. during class time. So, it so... It would be good done in Kruger's study, I guess, to, like, match the grades with the evaluations and see how much they they think they learned, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. graded badly. Uh, but I mean, here's the deal. Uh, so, like, if you are looking into any kind of research methods course, like, I mean, think about any, you know, like, shocking experience, like, too. Like, who are the people who write the reviews? Like, it's the ones that were really happy and the ones that were really, really unhappy. So, you know, I also look at, like, out of 65 people, how many people submitted the reviews, like, evaluations. If it's, like, five people, <laughs> like, what happened to the other 60 people? They were like, ah, it's all right. <laughs> well, let me just not make the, take, the time, take the time to make an evaluation, which is good enough. <laughs> You should sometimes settle with good enough, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, How useful did you find it to do the master's in psychology before the PhD? It was a good experience, so... Um, and what's the story? Uh, so, okay, so... Oh, uh, let me... Okay, so like I just got into the psychology department by chance, right? Ah. So, I, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> During my time, like, what were the, like, topics that were, you know, like, popular? Right now, it's psychology and law. At this, uh, in the past, they weren't. So, it was international... Yeah, newly formed. What's that? Like that, right? Uh, the psychology departments were yeah. Mostly. opening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think 
yeah, I mean, there wasn't much, uh, there weren't many departments around, definitely. Yeah. There weren't many universities around uh, <laughs> either, so, <laughs> so uh, you know, like the international relations, uh, political science, right. management, like were the, like you know these like departments that were very popular, <laughs> and I don't know how. Uh, oh, there was sociology, psychology. I was like, ah, oh, let me just like. So I sort of wrote them out in a very like whichever one was the highest, mm-hmm. like got the first place, right? <laughs> yes. So um, I'm from Istanbul, so like the, the first ones were like. Uh, Boazici and then like uh, I had like uh, met to Middle East Technical University so I got I had to get into like Middle East Technical University and like you know I had like no particular passion for psychology I don't think like by the time that you are 18 you really know what you're doing anyway so so like I go into my first class uh, so we had this professor who was teaching the intro to psychology class, Umur Talaslı. He was a cognitive psychologist. He was a professor of cognitive psychology, and apparently he doesn't usually teach that course. Uh, like, so, like, so like I go in and this guy comes into like the <laughs> class, no notes, nothing. Like he's just like right. talking out of He is incredibly like uh, well like well informed, mm-hmm. and I loved him. Like first, I loved him, and like when he was teaching intro to psychology, he was mostly focused on cognitive psychology. So he was talking about research methods, but he was giving examples from cognitive psychology, and I'm like, I like this guy. So <laughs> and I think. Like I took like four more classes from him. Uh, I was very lucky in that sense, and like you could see how like passionate he was. I mean, I liked other ones too. So, but you know, like my questions always went back to, in some way, memory. Like I don't know why, like how, because you know, like I do believe that like memory determines who you are. You know, like. Uh, all of what you know about yourself, like all of your conditioning, all of your like actual recallable memories, or recallable memories, they determine who you are at this moment. Like it is very difficult to and be divorced. And the point of that they are often wrong. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? Uh, the, that that they are not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You cannot recall accurately. Yeah, but I mean, there is like some way in which you recall yourself. You have an impression of yourself. You have an impression of other people. Whatever. And like always went back to that question. But the problem was this: like during that time, cognitive psychology was not popular at all. Like people did not know about cognitive psychology at all. So I went to coach. Uh, to get my uh, like master's degree mm-hmm. and like I was like where can I actually do cognitive psychology and memory mm-hmm. like because there is no cognitive, <laughs> cognitive psychology like program uh-huh. so the developmental program was a place in which I was like okay I'm gonna go into the 
developmental psychology and look into these memory questions. Okay. And uh, so I worked with Sami Gugos there at Coach. Uh, he was great, like he taught me a lot. He taught me how to love science, like how to do science in the first place. And I mean, it was actually a trial period for me. Like, is it something this like doing research? Mm-hmm. Is it something that I like? Yeah. So I got to test it out for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then like I worked for a year at this like mark, not for a year, full year, eight months, seven months, something like that, yeah. at this market research company as I was applying for PhDs, by the way. Uh, so I was like, I was convinced that like I really wanted to do this. Right. So like it helped me determine, you know. Uh, is this like what I want to do how I want to do it and I mean like once I had the chance to go to a PhD obviously I chose like a cognitive psychology program rather than a developmental psychology program because I was not as interested in the questions of development as I was in like basic mind processes yeah so it helped helped. and you got what you wanted in the end yeah Yeah. yeah. alright um Other than these people you mentioned in the Masters and the PhD and in the undergraduate, um, are there other people that influence your path in psychology? Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. Not that much, no. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, like, there are all these people I follow, like, in terms of, like, their research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think like from a personal perspective that like beyond my like undergraduate, graduate and PhD advisors like I followed anybody's path as much I I mean I think that there is like a general you know like okay so this is what you do now you keep on thinking of the next step but there wasn't anyone like I was like oh my god like this is who I want to be when I grow up Um, I think like it's like possible to have that I just didn't I think yeah yeah Yeah. I mean yeah at least yeah so um, you you have you have been studying memory but I see some recent articles about attachment and relationships as well. <laughs> and I was trying to see which one you were in, but I guess you're in both, but I don't know the whole story. So, I mean, basically, uh, that was not like my main area. So, one of the students who's like advisors actually, you know, left the university uh, like and went to another university so I was advising so in the meanwhile I had like some uh, I have like one online dating and memory experiment like with one of my students like Summit so that was actually you know like all about lying and how it affects memory and we were so like when I first wrote an article about like lying and how it affects memory and metacognitive processes in general um, I was using very basic semantic level questions so you were lying to general knowledge questions so let me let me give you an example so what is the color of blood instead of saying red you say purple you know like whatever it is like some other color than red right 
So like, uh, so the reviewer said, you know, is this really lying? <laughs> like you are just creating, generating incorrect information, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can't from, see what he means. from a cognitive perspective, like, yes, yeah, I mean, you are, it's like, lying. that's, like, operationally defined as lying because you are trying to, you twist know, truth. twist yeah. the truth. Um, and, like, you might be, you know, like, creating some kind of, like, motivation, hey, you really need to make this other person believe that the color of blood yeah. is perfect or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you could do that. But then, like, you know, I was thinking about, okay, so this is a semantic question, right? Like, because it's about meaning, it's like a general yes. knowledge. So what do people lie about, like, that is semantic? So <laughs> at that point, I realized, you know, like, dating sites. Like, man, this is the place where people do a lot of lying about their status, their, like, amount of money, how tall they are, how... <laughs> Yeah. How much, yeah. you know, like, uh, yeah. yeah, like their character, like yeah. how, whatever. They, people do lie a lot on dating sites, and yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to be about like some episodic event that they live through, mm-hmm. it can be about something that is semantic. So, yeah. uh, so like, we started doing this research on like uh, lying, and we wanted to give it like some kind of, uh, you know, like practical cover. Uh, so it was like we like took question. Collect the data here. So what? Well, so what we did was like to come up with questions about like dating, like that are in these like dating sites. You know, like they make you answer a bunch of questions about your height, about your weight, about physical appearance, about like. Uh, many different things so like we gathered like came up like with a bunch of questions and we told people hey like consider yourself that you are like responding to questions on the dating site mm-hmm. and like for some of them you will have to tell the truth some of them you will have to tell a lie uh, but then you know like you will have to remember them later on because you might be meeting the person who is <laughs> actually you know like reading your responses so like that was the way we kind of tried to do it again we asked the semantic questions over there if you ask episodic questions that can lead to different types of responses but you know like the idea was if you are lying to somebody saying that like you are 180 like uh, in terms of height even though you are 176 will you remember this response you know like to what extent uh, will you remember this response uh, so that's what we were trying to figure out like uh, but I mean it was and like whether you think you will remember the response, so uh, yeah, because yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and what did you see? Are people good at keeping up with their lies, or no, depends on how they have to answer the questions. So, for example, if you tell them, "Hey, tell me about your life," so they are doing free recall. Like yeah. we ask them, "Hey, you responded to all of these questions." Mm-hmm. You know, like, now tell me about yourself as if, like, you are talking to a date, but you will need to remember both your uh, truthful answers and deceptive answers, okay? So when they do this, they do remember their truths and lies to the same extent. So, like, there isn't much of a difference in terms of remembering it, but if 
they are being asked the question. Yeah. Actually, what happens is uh, they they remember their truthful responses more. So, like like if I ask you, hey, what is your height? They may not necessarily remember whether they told the truth or the lie to it, and they keep on telling the truth during like the, this like retrieval of information. So depending on like how you ask the question, uh, the responses like that they will remember that are deceptive versus truthful are going to change too. Okay, can you say based on this, people tend to tell the truth more? Because you said they revert back to the truth through answers when you ask them. I mean, obviously, remembering the truth is easier. Yeah. Um, and especially, you know, like if you like put a time being, mm-hmm. I have a tend- I have a feeling, you know, like there is this idea of like source monitoring. Yeah. So, which means when you are. Lying, you actually have to remember that you lied, and you have to remember which lie you told, right? Yeah. Like so, depending on what type of lie. So the further you get away from the time of lying, yeah. the more are the chances that you are going to go back to truthful information, uh, yeah. because you cannot monitor the source anymore. Uh, but I mean, it's, I mean, if we are actually applying it to real life, I think the results could be different. Why? Because you know, sometimes it's really important for you to be able to yeah. tell the same lie over and over again uh, to evade arrest. <laughs> right? I do watch these like true crime shows, and I look at investigations all the time, and like the. Detectives keep on asking the questions over and over again, like to get the person to catch them in a lie yeah, in general. Sure. So, like, but I mean, sometimes the same person will tell the same lie, mm-hmm. and if the other side cannot prove it, like, they are going to evade arrest, yeah. right? So, find out in the end, yeah. Uh, so, uh, if you did this experiment in like real life app like Tinder, what would you? Is there a process of doing this or no? Oh, that would be very difficult, uh, and you would need yeah. to get like consent from the. Uh, I think there might be ethical issues. So you might remember this like a year, a few years back, Facebook did this like mass experiment on contamination of emotion I think I cannot exactly remember so what they did was to manipulate the news feeds of people Uh and they either like used negative like uh, messages that people like so when people looked at it they would see the negative messages you know like the other uh, friends posted or they would see positive messages that friends posted and depending on you know like what they got maybe they're like uh, they're they're I think I think their status, like how positive they were in their own status, changed. I'm not exactly sure about the results, okay. but I mean the idea was like 
Facebook never got any kind of like consent from uh, all of these people and what they said is like hey this is like public data when people like sign up for Facebook yeah, like they already for this. they are already signing up for this yeah. that's what like <laughs> it's like part of the stuff but yeah. it creates a quite a critical uh, ethical concern because it's yeah. like because you are also changing people's like yeah, uh, by using these algorithms, you are making them feel better or <laughs> making them yeah. feel worse. Uh, are you taking any precautions, you know, uh, to revert them to their normal yeah. situation? So, in Tinder, this will be very difficult. Yeah. But uh, you can you ask for consent from the ones that are already in this, like not manufacturing new data, but taking existing data to one from the ones who gave you their consent. Hmm. I mean, if you had like a method to do that, that could be interesting to do, obviously. But, but if you lied, you wouldn't, I guess. See, the problem is yeah. like whenever you are getting into the field, <laughs> your control decreases too much, yeah. right? So um, I always think about it like um, some people are better off in field research, some people are better in labs. I do, I think, better in in a control freak environment yeah. for myself. I want to control like as much as I can. Once you go into these like more like uncontrolled experiments, it is more difficult to interpret the data. People do fantastic stuff. I love what they do. I don't know that I will be able to do that. And this is coming from a person, by the way, you know, like during some of my research, I do like provide food recipes. So people have to like uh, <laughs> watch food recipes and then like, uh, like remember those food oh, recipes, yeah, yeah. which is like pretty much like what you would have on uh, on like Netflix, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you know, like what we do is like we also mess up the signals for perceptual input. So yeah. uh, as they are watching this, either the sound goes like or it goes oh. bad, or the the the, the uh, visual output goes bad, and like we are trying to see whether people think that they will remember their message, like uh, the, this like food recipe, versus they will actually remember it, yeah. and even. Like this is like a very you know field like translational research. It's like something in between lab and the field. You are still conducting it in the lab, but you are using more naturalistic and dynamic material and stuff. Even then, like uh, my control freak side is like dying, right? Like trying to make sure are these really equivalent? Like all of these food <laughs> recipes we have. So yeah. the, like going into any kind of social media dating site or whatever really freaks me out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, I do love what people do. Mm-hmm. It's just that I, I don't think like I That's will be feeling comfortable yeah. doing that. I definitely understand. Um, uh, you, you said you, you were doing experiments with the sounds and the visual outputs. Um, is are you hoping to figure out what's going on in the background or are you trying to figure out the implications of what people, how well people remember? Like, um, 
do you want to like enhance the people's ability to understand or do you just want to know how people remember oh i i don't think like you They have can to influence both yeah 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 so like when we are talking about meta memory we are talking about like uh, a few things one of them is like so meta memory actually refers to how you are able to monitor regulate and control the information so currently most of the experiments that i run are looking at how you monitor your like own like memory processes mm -hmm. uh, technically you are not really good at that like there are systematic factors that seem to affect it so fluency being one meaning like if something feels hard to you it's yeah. not like as fluid it's not as like easy to understand easy to perceive easy to you know like manipulate you have a tendency to think that you will not remember it right so like part of it is to understand like uh, whether like fluency always affects memory and meta memory like in like meta memory in the same way mm -hmm. so like so basically there are two points of view one of them is that like and we know that typically if something is fluent people have a tendency to think that it uh, it will be remembered better all right all right so but uh, so like why so the one of the questions is why and the why question is like they do have two theoretical like thoughts one of them is that like you are automatically again like deciding on this you have no consciousness involved you are just like once you see this like fluent or this front information you are making this judgment on a very like basic way without actually realizing it yeah. using the cues the other way is like uh, what they are saying is that it's just a belief right so like when the participant comes into the experiment yeah. they actually like are trying to figure out what's going on so if you give them fluent versus this fluent material mm -hmm. they are going to try to you know like use this cue as a way to make judgments so yeah. the decision is more conscious mm -hmm. now like depending on whether you know like it's like fluency versus beliefs like whether it is automatic versus effortful mm -hmm. like judgments you can actually try to change it more or less. So if it's all on beliefs, maybe you can change the belief. Yeah. Again, like just like any other process that we were talking about, you know, like sometimes you do know something, you don't, yeah. you know, like you cannot change it. We don't know if we can change it. So, you know, like on a theoretical basis, I'm looking at what's the mechanism behind it. How much of it is automatic? How much of it is effortful and conscious? Yeah. Uh, on the other side, I'm looking at the practical implication, like if they know that this is a belief, can we potentially change it? So, yeah. uh, so I'm trying to get to both, so, uh, and they do affect each other. It turns out that even if it's a belief, mm -hmm. it, it becomes difficult to change. <laughs> I mean, you know, probably like there are different, so like just telling people, hey, this is not something that you have to take into consideration, <laughs> doesn't really work. Oh, yeah. Like maybe, you know, like giving them the experience works. 
right? So we do work on a few experiments that actually looks at like, hey, like if we do multiple like learning testing sessions, yeah. can we change this belief mm -hmm. in a more efficient manner? Yeah. So I, tr I try to get to both of these in the experiments. Um, you mentioned since they know they're in an experiment, they're um, somehow in a different state of mind when they're having this um, intercepted, I guess, inputs. Yeah. Um, uh, how do you think it changes the, the results of the experiment? I don't know. Um, do you I'm see much of an influence there? I, I would assume it wouldn't affect that much since memory is not that cognitively aware of from, from our perspective, but so, it could be also. I mean, one of the results that you find with any kind of manipulation, mm -hmm. so even if it's like, even if you think about memory as like a sort of uncontrolled process, whatever, yeah. whatever manipulation you do, if you do it as a within subjects manipulation, mm -hmm. right, you do seem to get differences more obviously as you would than like as a between subjects. So I'm getting one condition, you are getting one condition, versus I'm getting both of the conditions together. Mm -hmm. um, so this is like, I mean, sometimes considered within the idea of demand characteristics. So this is one of the things that we look into as well, right? Like, so if we are having this experiment as a within subjects design versus a between subjects design, are we getting similar results? Uh, so like, so for example, with the lying experiment. So the idea is, uh, in a bunch of experiments we looked at like whether like telling a lie actually affects metacog like whether you will remember the information versus not yeah. uh, whether you will remember it now like if you are having a free recall experiment and the within subjects decide participants when they lie because it is more effortful it is less fluent it takes yeah. a longer reaction time they do have a tendency to think that they will remember the lie less mm -hmm. But if you give them a free recall test, recall all of the truthful and the uh, deceitful information that you had like told during the encoding process, they do remember their lies more than the truth, yeah. at least with general knowledge. But this is a within subjects design. Now, when you change it into a between subjects design, like so, there is a group that is getting both, like both truths versus lies. The other is getting like only telling lies the other group is only getting telling truths okay <laughs> so when you do this you actually stop seeing results in both like metacognition and memory like in both of them reaction times stay the same so like but reaction times do not technically are not reflected in these judgments. So the, yeah. one of the ideas is that if it's an automatic process, mm -hmm. like this like coming up with a judgment about your memory, if yeah. it's less fluent, you are having difficulty, your reaction time should be making the difference, right? Like the longer the reaction time, the lower your judgment should be. Yeah, because it's this. Yeah, like that if, that's what we are saying. But yeah. like now like the reaction times are very slow in lying, mm -hmm. very fast in telling the truth, yeah, yeah. but these are not reflected in the judgment. So at least we know that like there is 
have some kind of baseline through which we are judging ourselves. So like if the baseline is presented to us at that very moment, we are like having this differentiation, making this differentiation more easily. But if the baseline is not there, you don't make that judgment so easily. Like you don't have a basis by which you can do the judgment. Uh, and I mean, this is something you see in decision-making processes. So one of the things that they do at uh, grocery stores, mm-hmm. right, is like they, for example, put like many, many different ones side by side. Yeah. You need to get something. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that, you know, like you don't want to look too cheap. You don't want to get something too expensive. So you get the one in the middle, which is relative. Well, what does the um, uh, grocery store do in order to make the wine? They put a very expensive wine. Yeah. <laughs> now your <laughs> baseline has changed because that there is that like expensive wine. You choose a little bit more expensive wine than the middle one because you know that like specific thing is there. So we use these relative conditions to judge our performance. Yeah. And if that like other condition is not there, we might not be judging it in the same way. And this like is reflected in memory processes, in decision making for why. It's reflected in a lot of different types of truth judgments. The same way, like uh, so. So we do see same processes in different uh, cognitive. Uh, same things like same results happening in different cognitive processes. Yeah, I. I can't imagine how how much we could be manipulated using the, these in truth situations because they can feed you with the wrong information first and then the second too and when you come to the third you expect truth now but yeah they can put different orders so that you are tricked which which kind of sucks but yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean yeah I mean I always think, you know, like, uh, there is this type of people who is like, oh, nobody can deceive me. I am a, like, judge of character. (laughs) I do think it's all about context. Like, any of us can be, you know, like, deceived. Any of us can be, like, manipulated. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just that, like, depends on a bunch of contexts whether you are getting feedback, whether you are not getting feedback, so it's not it's important to be humble about all of these of course. situations. Of course. <laughs> um, you studied rotation and inversion and takes takes uh, that and you concluded they don't affect the ability to memorize according to uh, a study of yours. Do you have any idea why this is so? Why rotation and inversion doesn't change the Recalling ability or judgments of recalling. Uh, it, it, it doesn't change the judgments. It sometimes changes the actual performance. Actually. Okay. So. Uh, I mean. You see hypothesis works. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. So the fluency hypothesis doesn't really work. See, this is one of the boundary conditions. So. You know, like usually, typically, if you have like some kind of perceptual difficulty yeah. during the learning, it seems to affect 
judgments of learning such that people have a tendency to judge the different information less favorably. So if something is easy to perceive, you give it higher judgments of learning. Yeah. Now, but most of the time, the differences between the two conditions are well, like, there is like a good timing difference, right? So it's like 200, mil, uh, 200 milliseconds, so which is like one-fifth of a second. It doesn't feel like much, yeah. but it is quite a bit like once like you are having that difficulty, you do feel it. Now, my guess, this is just a speculation, mm-hmm. with the mental rotation, the differences between the front and the front conditions are not that like uh, identifiable by the participants. So the idea is that they are not having as so like let's say that like in a sort of manipulation, mm-hmm. the difficult condition takes you like uh, 800 milliseconds. The okay. easy condition takes you 500 milliseconds. Okay, so that's like uh, something that the humans can realize. Oh, there's a difference in between the two. Yeah. With the rotation task, the difference seems like 600 to 500, right? So it's like the difference not is only much. not yeah. that much. So I think part of it is that like we are not sensitive enough to realize the I difficulty. See. Again, which speaks to like it being conscious. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, you know, like, if you don't realize that there's a difficult difference, yeah. you don't, like, use it in your judgments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I think, like, that's part of it. Um, right. But, I mean, even, like, telling people, hey, like, this can change your performance, might also create changes in how you are going to spare your cognitive resources during the learning process. That's one of the other, like, uh, findings that we got from this research. Yeah. How much do you see self-fulfilling prophecies in these uh, studies? Hmm. Self-fulfilling prophecies in these studies. They judge they are going to do well, but do they? So, again, like, it's going, I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, obviously I do, I do believe that like self-fulfilling prophecies really guide our learning like if you believe that you are not going to learn it no matter what you are not going to pass that like calculus course right but um, so within these experiments usually the you might not usually believe that like you are going to remember this information but if the manipulation is within you are going to have a judgment difference no matter what. So your calibration might be lower. So somebody who is really trusting themselves, for the fluent condition, they might say, I'm going to, like, on average, like, remember 80% of the words yeah. versus 60% of the words. For the person that is, like, less confident about themselves, mm-hmm. there will still be that difference, but they will maybe from 40 to 20, right? Yeah. Like, you will like with the within subjects design, you will get the results a little bit more unambiguously there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so if the person is so, this is again an issue of calibration. So, how accurate are you in remembering your performance? So, it's really funny because uh, I. I always 
always have a bonus question in my exams at the end of the exam asking participants participants my students uh, to to calculate their no to to guess their like score that they are going to get from the exam and there will be these like intentional people I'm a metacognition researcher obviously <laughs> so I mean there will be these people and it's really funny to see like uh, who will like actually go into every question and give themselves a grade for each I used, one that I used to do that without prompting <laughs> right yeah and I mean you see these people like being really accurate because like they are actually calculating and they if they sort of have an idea about their own yeah. stuff they can calculate it but I mean like people are so different so like you see people who are getting 100s mm-hmm. and like calculating their like uh, predicting their score to be 80 mm-hmm. being underconfident wow. and then like you will see people like who are getting 30s like barely you kind of wonder whether they were ever in class you know? <laughs> and like getting 30 and then yeah. Uh, thinking that their performance is going to be 70. Hmm. So, technically, what helps your performance is always being underconfident because if you're yeah, underconfident, you work more. <laughs> uh, and, like, usually with the highest grades, you see underconfidence. But, I mean, I can also see it being a consequence of, like, I don't want to say to the hoja <laughs> that I'm going to get 100, like that I am that awesome. <laughs> yeah, but, she's making me do this, I <laughs> Right? I mean, but the, the idea is like, I, I ask them to predict their score and I tell them like, you're only going to get the points if you are five points above or below this point, oh. right? So they need to be accurate, like I give them some motivation to do that too. Um, well, I mean, obviously, like, it's going to... I mean, it, people are very different. So, for some people, it's going to be there, like, self-fulfilling prophecies. I mean, obviously, if you believe, I will never pass this exam, mm-hmm. you, this can also change your, like, studying method. It can also change, like, how much you are willing to learn. It can, it can change things. I can see self-fulfilling prophecies being important in real life learning. If in the experiments, I'm not exactly sure. I see. Maybe, maybe teaching method might be like just before the exam, make, make them all underconfident. Huh? It's a very hard question. Oh man. Yeah. It's bad. Going to be so difficult. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. But it I, can enhance her performance, and if you don't change the questions, you basically just uh, deceive and get good, good performance. I don't know, I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe someone. I mean, it's going to lead to different results in different people, too. Oh, like, yeah, that's, that's the. So, like, one of the theories says that, like, depending on how much time you have left <laughs> and depending on your, like, belief in yourself, the place at which you are going to, you know, like, whether you are going to study the topics that are the easiest <laughs> or, like, a little bit more difficult is going to change. Right. So, for example, if you don't have time, <laughs> 
uh, what you do is to try to master the easiest material because yeah. those are the ones that you will get for sure if you study. Yeah. If you have a little bit of more time and you have like a little bit of more, you know, like belief in yourself, people yeah. do focus on other parts too. Yeah. So it's going, it does make a difference. Nice. Yes. We can actually see each other. <laughs> yeah, finally. <laughs> it was a romantic, you know, like moment we had. Yeah, candles. So. under the candle with the with the accompaniment of candles. Yes. And you have looked at ordered and disordered list memorizations. What are the insights that you and we can derive from this? Ordered and disordered. Like there is this. From what I've seen, I'm not sure if this is entirely correct. There are lists, and you tell people to memorize the lists. Uh-huh. But the lists are sometimes ordered according oh, okay. to something. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Maybe a very um, distant paper of yours, but yeah, okay. I have seen something. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, order is going to make a difference. So, like. It will also make a difference if you have prior knowledge or not. Like, so, uh, or if you ask people to remember things in order, mm-hmm. uh, they are going to prioritize like the inco- like incoming of the stimulus, yeah. and they might actually, you know, like because you change their organization they might remember in a different way if they were to remember in a free manner okay so but like i think like one of the ideas also is that with the ordered and disordered uh, lists is like with these cooking lists right like cooking recipes so in a recent paper uh, a large who is now a graduate student at WashU uh, uh, St. Louis. She she was looking at like these like food recipes, right? And uh, as she was looking at them like in like a couple of experiments, we looked at like normal like so participants were given like a full food recipe Mm -hmm. so they would be like watching it and then like try to uh, try to like remember the items then they would be given another recipe try to remember like the list so and we were also looking at their judgments right in general like as to how quickly like they were able to uh, how, how much like these perceptual disfluencies like i mean if you try to const- contextualize this think that like you are watching netflix right like you're watching a cooking show but your internet goes like from time to time it's a, the signal is a little low so you sometimes understand some things you don't uh, most of the time you do understand but it's like a little like shaky right either the sound or the visual output is a little bit problematic so do you think that you remember like this food recipe when you are trying to cook it later and the second thing will you actually remember it so it turns out that like if you have some kind of auditory 
like problem versus like a visual problem. And if it's this like normal recipe, the auditory information affects your judgments. Wow. So you don't think that you are going to remember the information mm -hmm. if the sound is bad. All right, like, but like the visual output does not make so much of a difference if it's an ordered list. Now, obviously, is, is that because we are better at uh, constructing mental images rather than mental sounds, or? See, okay, I I will get to that like okay. in a second. So like. So, like, when you are, but you, if, if you are looking at the memory performance, by the way, there is no difference across any of those conditions. Like, yeah. people are doing perfectly in all of them. Mm -hmm. But the judgments, like whether they will remember the information, yeah. goes worse when it's like auditory material, right? So, like, I mean, it might also be that the, it's a food recipe and it's a bunch of instructions. Uh, visual material, like, it's not, it's like, it just like helps. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have it, you can still cook, right? Um, why do you specifically choose cooking um, recipes or are there other domains that you can See, okay, all right, all right. I will get to that. Okay. Just give me a second. Sorry, sorry no, 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 no problem. So, but like, so like when we did this, like in the normal recipe, so you have like, actually you can use all of your schemas, like cooking instructions that you know from the past because the recipes make like uh, sense, right? Yeah. And like, for example, if you used paplajan eggplant in yeah. one, the in the second like step of the recipe, you are repeating paplajan, even if it's like given to you in a in a like uh, this fluent version, you okay. can remember it from the previous item, from the previous step, right? So there are all these things that are helping you in your normal life mm -hmm. when the information is not so fluent, is not easy to receive, you can use all of these like prior knowledge to complete these like uh, like deal with these issues. Mm -hmm. Now it happens that way in this ordered schema consistent like logical list. Okay. Now like in the, in the, in one of the experiments, what we did was okay. Let's take the logic out of it. What did we do? We took these like completely irrelevant items from the, the irrelevant food recipes. The moment we did that, first of all, the memory performance went down from 70% to 30%. People can, and it was much less like in terms of like items that we had there. The second thing is like suddenly all of these like perceptual disfluencies started affecting metacognitive judgments in the visual output as well. Oh. So depending on whether you have some like... Uh, is, it, is it just... Yeah, I, I don't know. What are the reasons behind it? So now you cannot use logic. Like you had seen yeah. Patlijon eggplant in the previous one. <laughs> now you cannot see the eggplant yeah. now. It's a completely different thing. There is no logical like cooking order. Does you don't have any schemas. Just you just don't. It's 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 more difficult to understand it because yeah. like again like if you have seen the visual output before mm -hmm. in some format when it's continuous when it's, there is some kind of logic yeah. you can use that information to fill out the upcoming materials yeah. so the order helps you. And you can uh, follow your head, so yeah 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 you can yeah exactly but when it's not ordered. Mm -hmm. You are going to mess 
up because you cannot use the previous item to help you come up with like explanation of what you see on TV anymore. So also the visual information yeah. starts like bothering you. Uh, so like order makes a difference. Your prior ability to be able to use the prior knowledge makes a difference. I think I think everything comes down to that in the end. Like yeah. honestly, like order, disorder, like fluency, disfluency. If there is a way in which you can use some kind of script, some kind of narrative, some kind of like schema. The information coming to you is not that perfect. Yeah. You can like make it more perfect or more reasonable, more rational. Sure. But if like you cannot use anything, your ability to be able to remember that information is going to change too. Yeah. Uh, so like ordered and disordered makes the full difference, particularly if it's like some kind of a script schema that is being involved in the situation. Yeah. Um, did you ever try uh, try to some real I don't know scripts of text like a person going down through the street and having an experience just writing of that? Hmm. It doesn't change if the text is the text is not a list of items, list of actions, hmm. but a person's person story. Then caring would be involved, yeah. and the interestingness of the uh, story. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think like one of the problems we have in like experimental research is like everything is so devoid of context, right? Yeah. So like you give these words, you give like completely like made up like manipulations that do not seem to involve real life. Yeah. Obviously, the moment that you are making them a little bit more meaningful, you are losing some part of the control. Yeah, exactly. yeah I mean, it's very difficult. You need to I do mean, those to get to those parts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like and I mean, I think, I, I mean, at least I try, I try to, you know, like do it myself now, like by using a little bit more like real life like materials and stuff. And I think it does make quite a bit of difference. I guess your coming up experiment involves noting down a YouTube video or something. Oh, uh, there is one, yeah, like so. <coughs> so there is this like uh, experiment. Are you talking about cognitive offloading experiments or no? I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the idea is just like, uh, so if we are looking at these food recipes, like for example, um, so like, let's say that you were given the chance to write down notes about it. Yeah. And like, you think that you are going to be able to use them later on mm -hmm. versus you cannot use them later on. Yeah. How is your performance going to change? Like how much are you going to offload this note? How much of it is going to be still in your minds? Because, you know, yeah. sometimes taking the notes might also help you like remember the information a little Surely. bit better, yeah. right? Uh, because, you know, like you create the cues 
but like when it's being taken away from you, how well are you, you know, going to be able to do that? So like we are running an experiment with like young and old adults right now, trying to look at this and actually you know with older adults it's a little bit less intimidating, I think, because it's food recipes, like it's something that they want to <laughs> no, deal with. They are yeah, like yeah. they are not as like they don't uh, have the time to deal with, but yeah, they can actually do that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that helps. But I mean it's yeah, I mean it's a difficult balance I'm going to say like because the moment that you create these materials uh, every single time that you are trying to publish them, like some reviewer yeah. rightfully will ask, hey, how does it compare? Like, you are, like, for example, like for these like cooking recipes, we have to do a lot of pilots. Mm -hmm. uh, like, how much do people actually understand the disfluent news, uh, disfluent like versions of the items? Yeah. How much, uh, how much, uh, like, are the visual disruptions versus the auditory disruptions equal to each other, right? Like, why are you using food recipes but not football? Because, you know, like, uh, again, like, these are all relevant questions. I mean, the reason that we use, like, the food recipes was, um, I'm trying to remember. It's very general. It's easy to, like, there is, like, procedure. Uh, and like it makes sense from like a naturalistic perspective, yeah. it's dynamic materials. Some you know like Some researchers are using uh, instructor fluency, like whether the person is like a good instructor, like coming up with like very lively stuff, or are they like this fluent, not being able to talk, yeah. uh, their voice is low, whatever it is, like how it affects student evaluation, student wow. learning, and all. Of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's not real. Like, I mean, they are again like making it up. Like, yes. the same instructor is like. Yeah, further down the road, you, you would be able to do this if you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, like, again, but I mean, it's like again, like I'm doing it for food recipes where there's a lot of instructions. Auditory information is going to be important. Yeah. Like, if you are looking at say football, right? Like, uh, and people are trying to play football, the sound goes. The the, like looks the, the the visual output goes like are you going to have the same kind of like results I mean I would guess like that in that instance the visual output would be like and the metacognitive judgments about the visual output would be more uh, like articulated and like they would be like prioritized as compared to the auditory ones. But then, like, you hear people saying, hey, like, when I'm watching soccer, I cannot watch it without a sound. Like, I need to have the, like, guy, like, say something and shout and, like, uh, tell me, tell me about the, like, whole soccer game. It's, it's a really important business, especially in Turkey. Yeah. Like, you, you can't even imagine how much we pay more to this speakers um, rather than, like, the Germany does. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, uh, I'm always amazed, like, I can never watch soccer. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. uh, like, but I, I see, like, for example, cab drivers, like, they are pretty much in the game, like, they can completely <laughs> visualize it. In the same time, I'm like, they are driving, doesn't it interfere their working, like, memory, and can they see what's in front of us? Like, I have all of these, like, <laughs> concerns. 
but like they seem to be fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Most like... of the time they even drove when driving into a brand new sound of football. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if the team is winning, right? Oh, That's yeah, what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess since the automatic and like um, conscious memory comes up, effortful memory comes up a lot. We are not really similar to computers and remembering sense. Um, do you see some similarities and what what other differences do you see? Uh, I mean, computer analogy was like one of the initial analogies I was used to yeah. like look at cognitive psychology. That's how cognitive psychology began. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think like computer analogy is more helpful when you are thinking about, for example, working memory processes, um, because you know, like there is a RAM, you know, like there is like limited capacity, only so much you can like experience, uh, experience learn, yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. With the long-term memory and retrieval from long-term memory, I mean, uh, I'm not sure we are very similar because you know, yeah. in any with the computer if like you are if the computer is performing a function that RAM is going to be used right um, so like the automatic effortful process is not so well defined within that RAM I mean it might be that like one program uses so much more like of the RAM power the other one uses yeah. much less uh, like that could potentially perhaps talk to how you are recalling information from long-term memory, but it doesn't really work the same way. Like yeah. it, it almost feels like you know, uh, if you ask me, like I mean, if I had to make some kind of like analogy, mm-hmm. this is a non-existent computer. <laughs> so you have one that is running and like it has limited process okay. and like whatever you see over like on the screen is like whatever that RAM is like presenting you with but there is another one right below it you don't know what it does you don't know how it does it but it's still like from the background is controlling some of the visual output that you are getting like without without ever contacting the other one. Oh, maybe they contact through this like card at which like your consciousness appears perhaps but that's feeling that I have about the whole like I, I don't think the computer analogy at least works for like all of these like long term memory one well, can try and, make, try and make a model out of what you just said <laughs> um, um, it would be a fun project for sure yeah but I mean like uh, then you would be getting all of these weirdness <laughs> in the outcome, right like suddenly you have this oh, consciousness and <laughs> every single time he went a little berserk. I think that's yeah. what's gonna happen, Function right? <laughs> but I mean, we are weird people, right? All yeah, of yeah. us have like some kind of oddity. <laughs> I think, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, do you see some connection with artificial intelligence in memory? Because um, apparently it sometimes remembers well, sometimes very wrong. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, do you do you have any insights on ChatGPT's abilities oh. and coming up abilities? I mean, it's a language model, right? Like, so it's like more related to how much text that the the chat GPT processed. Yes. I think it's like fantastic, honestly. Like, it can write a whole story out of this language model. And, um, but I mean, so one of the problems is that the chat GPT, for example, lies quite a bit, right? Yeah. Like, all of this information that you, like, honestly, certain level, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's about this, like, so, okay, so let me just come from a certain place as to why I started working on memory. So, like, the idea is that the moment that we are born, like, we start, like, coming up with, like, uh, I mean, we try, like, our self-identity starts like developing like yeah. we initially like up until three four we cannot really understand the world is not an extension of ours mm -hmm. and then like it takes a while for us to realize oh this person can have a different point of view than myself right eventually like you kind of have your uh, more like because of all of the experiences that you have had the genetic code the cultural experiences the sociocultural context whatever contextual information you have had starts shaping like what you are going to attempt to right yes. so like um, uh, and the way that you attend to things is going to change what you are going to remember Yes. And the way that you remember is going to change how you are going to exactly. act towards people. So yeah. this is the whole like self-fulfilling prophecy mm -hmm. stuff, right? Yeah. So the, your attention is like uh, making quite a bit of difference. Now, like, uh, and like you will remember stuff incorrectly depending on what kind of preconceptions you have about life, yeah. what kind of like hypothesis you have about life. Mm -hmm. During the day, we are exposed to one million like stimuli. I'm just making up the number right now. How many are you going to remember? 30. <laughs> so you remember so little and those 30 that you are going to remember is going to be shaped by what you already know, what you believe in, what you stand for. And it's very difficult to change that like preconceived notion, right? Like, uh, and like this is the confirmation bias too, right? Like you like you see a full text like you take the part that you believe in and it's very difficult even as a scientist to consider that other view that you do not believe in and where it's coming from so like uh, so like we are very different than this chat GPT in the sense that like we are prioritizing some information over the other yes. chat GPT will not have that like if it's uh, processed 1 billion texts mm -hmm. it will take an average and yeah and it won't be it's as biased as us perhaps you know like there will yeah. be those changes the second thing is like I wonder I don't know like I don't know like how it works so for our memory mm -hmm. why do we misremember um, when we take in there is some things that are going wrong because our perception is so involved and second when we are remembering again the cues are again involved I guess 
So the idea is that, I mean, the reason that we misremember is like because of all of these like time. So technically you have all of these episodic traces like of the real truthful information, right? But like uh, you also like reconstruct some part of the information depending on the context, depending on like what is around you depending on what is rational so if something does not fit your schema you may not remember that information later on right so like uh, so we we are going to be biased and we are going to misremember with like uh, in harmony with our preconceptions or like schemas narratives like whatever story we tell ourselves right but you know like might not have the same thing. Yeah, what they might be doing is like uh, they don't have a preconception. They don't really care. Like they are just <laughs> taking an average. Yeah, yeah. Um, to the extent that like it's a full average because like some information is going to be conflicting mm-hmm. the previous information. Yeah. How is it going to decide? Like so, you need to write that part of the program, which is going to determine how much is it, it is going to be similar to our memory too. Yes. So, like we have all of these built-in hypotheses, like that are running in our minds, that are controlling who we are, what we think, and how we are going to act as we right move now, forward. We are training all of these, um, all of these artificial networks uh, with our own data, our human data. So. Uh, we, we can possibly expect similar patterns at some point. Do you think it's a good idea to study the, the behavior of the neurons of the artificial networks to understand humans at some point? It depends on how much of it you were able to mimic, right? Yeah. And I have this feeling that we may not be able to mimic so well all the time, right? Like, I mean, it's going to depend. Again, like, we have so much experience, like, uh, and our ability to infer from very little experience (laughs) is so much more than artificial intelligence. Like, so the artificial intelligence can come up with this, like, lovely, you know, like, language, a little bit exaggerated, too. (laughs) But it won't understand the meaning of it itself. Like, we as humans are attributing meaning to it. So you think there there are some other processes that construct the mind okay yeah i mean so like technically it's called the emergent properties so there's something that happens at the level of the neurons that are like sort of random or like is educated in one manner it's trained in one manner right Uh, so that will be one thing but there might be all of these processes that we don't know, that we don't take into consideration, that are going to affect the humans, but not the artificial intelligence, because we don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's Um, that's the job of neuroscientists, I guess. (laughs) Good luck to them. (laughs) (laughs) That's an easy task. Um, The methods you apply while studying memories are very interesting to me in general. Uh, You you had two types of images in one study of yours, ones that are complete and ones that requires participants to mentally fill in. Um, how much is the difference 
starting the ability to remember in these images and how do you construct these um, different types of experiments, different types of images um, how much should you blur, how much should you cut out oh. for the mental feeling inability extreme piloting <laughs> so what you do is like uh, you try to first of all like kind of have to make sure that the images for example if you want them to identify the image mm -hmm. the image should be named with the same thing right yeah. like if somebody is saying it's a computer the other one is saying it's a laptop that might be a problem i mean uh, with the yeah. two it's not too, too much of a problem but mm -hmm. there will be situations in which somebody will say something is a blanket the other one will say it's a scarf right or like, pictures of animals yeah yeah like is it the same animal like are mm -hmm. like so I have this like image in one of my classes. It's this image of a squirrel, or I think it's a squirrel. Uh, so like in the exam, I keep on like seeing it as the image of a rabbit. Right? Like the students think it's a rabbit. Uh, but I mean like the thing that you need to have like needs to be nameable uh, in the same way. Like people should be able to understand that it's a blanket versus a shawl. So that's the first thing. So if you are for example using some kind of blurring some kind of uh, like checkerboard pattern in complete image you also have to like make sure that people can recognize it despite that like blurring that we have uh, and like you have to do a lot of piloting uh, with different people to make sure hey like yes it's still a rabbit not a squirrel it's like still a blanket not a shawl like I mean typically most of these experiments so that's what makes like contextual experiments that have like any kind of like more naturalistic material even harder because how much people are going to interpret is going to be more variable as compared to simple stuff. How much does this part take for you? For <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, sometimes, like, over the years, you know, I have, I have been doing this for a while, I feel like I have developed a good instinct as to, like, what is right, what is not. Yeah. But, I mean, again, like, you have to test it. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to make sure if you don't, <laughs> some reviewer will actually ask you to do it. It's like, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's let's do it in the beginning so that you know, like, uh, <laughs> we already know what's going on. I mean, uh, once you set up like some kind of stimuli, you want to use it more than you do, especially if it's like. A, a, tiresome process, like cumbersome process, you want to use it for more than one experiment yeah. for sure, but the piloting, depending on what it is, takes forever. I see. Yeah. Um, you have studied uh, also bold texts and I don't know, other types of texts that um, for the study of this perceptual fluency hypothesis, um, how, how, how are the results and yeah. What are the uh, texts like I haven't studied bold texts really. Like I have studied like various different types of perceptual response. Boldness wasn't one of them. In usually, typically, you find that like the boldness doesn't make 
uh, like so there there was this like very you know like uh, uh, flashy title uh, what was it uh, fortune <laughs> favors the bold uh, and that they meant the and not the italics I think like so technically you know like um, uh, boldness sometimes affects the metacognitive judgments. It doesn't always affect the actual memory performance. That's what you find. Uh, but, you know, uh, with the... But, I mean, the, the results were very much, like, uh, debated later on. It was a controversial result because yeah. a lot of experiments failed to replicate this result in general. Uh, I do use masked texts sometime. Mm -hmm. Again, like in those, um, if like, if you can mask them properly, usually like because participants are having more difficulty yeah. during the processing of that like masked information, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they do remember it better as compared to information that is shown intact. So masked versus normal sometimes makes a difference, uh, but again, like it's going to depend on the parameters. So if you show it a little bit too long, mm -hmm. it's not going to produce the results. Okay. Like people need to again put in the effort. <laughs> I keep on going back to the same image, uh, same message, don't I? Yeah, but it turns out, yeah, memory is all about effort. <laughs> And like that's going to increase your chances of like learning. Yeah. I see. Uh, do you will you do any uh, any experiments with colors, like um, with different backgrounds for these cooking recipes? Hmm. I don't know. Uh, what would be the theoretical question for that? So I want to. Are, there, are there any difference? Hmm, why would you why would you think that there would be a difference between different colors? Because possibly, I mean, if you could find one, it would change a lot of things. That's what I'm imagining. And maybe we, we have some more preference to natural colors such as green. I see. Uh, usually there isn't. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that, again, everything is more... Um, more like meaningful in the meaning of context so yeah. we do have a tendency to remember what is different than the rest yeah. so if you have a list <laughs> okay and some of the items are bold some of the items are not bold <laughs> and the like proportion of bold items is less you yeah. do have a tendency to remember them better but if the most of it is bold and there's like a couple that is like normal mm -hmm. but not. Then you prefer then the normal you, ones. Then you re re prefer the normal ones. So right. again, like what makes the difference is not necessarily always the item or the perceptual properties of the item itself, mm -hmm. but how it differs from the context. So when we are thinking about like perceptual fluency, I am wondering one of the issues is like perceptually this fluent stuff is different than what we see every day. Like we usually perceive the world in a fluent way. Yeah. I mean it's not only for perceptual stuff by the way, like gen I mean like meaning wise too, you know. Mm -hmm. Things like we can complete things very easily. Maybe, you know, the disfluency attracts our attention because it's different than the context. So if yeah. everything was disfluent for us, 
might have been able to remember the fun stuff better. So uh, that might also be making a difference. So I do believe that like looking at things from a view of context makes a difference too. Yeah, an application might be directly like painting the um, the blackboard's background to white so that it's more apparent or the other way around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, if you if you cannot see, you are not going to remember it because you didn't process this to begin with. But given that you are processing it, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be producing okay. such different results. Like, I I don't know. Like they. So, for example, you know, um, so one of the findings that you have with truth judgments, for example, this was a study by Unkalba, I think. So what he did was to, maybe not, uh, let me not get it wrong, like I can't remember the author right now. So it's either like low contrast items, like statements. So it's like light blue background, yellow writing versus black background versus white writing yeah. and they wrote statements right and typically what happened was like and the participants were asked hey like how truthful do you think are these so when the contrast was high participants thought that it was more truthful as compared <laughs> to when the contrast was lower like Whoa. it's like a surface characteristics that you should be paying attention to technically, yeah. but like people do pay and attention to it. that's why Facebook actually influences people with those random things. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does, because you know, like, I mean, sometimes we take into consideration things that we should not be taking consideration into, yeah. and sometimes we fail to consider the things that are important, you know, like sometimes, the content of the message, like... Yeah, sometimes really all it takes is a good picture and a black, black background. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. yeah well, it is. Very interesting result, again. Um, you, in one of your experiments, you also found out that attach, attachment styles change in the short term with positive experiences, but not in the long term. Possibly not in the long, long term, but I want to get your idea on how do you think this is? Um, do sh can the attachment styles of humans change in the long run as well or no? Uh, if you are moving from like avoidant to secure, it can <laughs> possibly help. I mean, people do. So it depends on context, I guess. <laughs> right? <laughs> You, if you have been like, I mean, so the attachment styles, why do they form? Technically, they form because you are adapting to the environment. Yeah. Um, so the idea is that like, uh, if you have a caregiver that is like sensitive, that is uh, like uh, taking care of your needs, is there when you need them and is not like, is letting you like, explore when you would like to so you have a tendency to form secure attachments and these like initial attachments that you form can later on also like be you know like uh, be also uh, reflected in your rate later relationships friendships romantic relationships 
adult relationships, all of that, right? But, you know, like, let's say that, like, your caretaker was never there when you were young. Are you always going to avoid other people and be try to, you know, be there? So, technically, you can, you can perhaps change that too, yeah, yeah. up to a certain extent. Like, if you, have, if you are pairing up with somebody who has secure attachment style, your chances of, like, being able to revise how you are, like, again, it's a matter of like how much you can notice I am avoidant <laughs> and like I try but this is how I relate just give me time you know like you kind of again like I mean attachment is a two-way street right and it will need to like it changes like some people make you feel less secure maybe you know again they are more familiar Oh, yeah. to, like to your initial caretaker who wasn't really uh, like interested like was neglectful like you cannot know that so um, you might be attracted to those people too so so like avoiding people uh, seem to attract anxious uh, attachment style anxious avoidance so one of them is like asking <laughs> give me love give me love hey, are you there are you <laughs> well, but I mean, this type of and the dynamic works. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's toxic. Toxic. <laughs> it can turn toxic. I mean, like, like it turns out to be like a bunch. Like you need to be able to communicate with the other person, I suppose, yeah. to be able to uh, like figure it out. Therapy. House, you know? yeah. uh, it's again like everything is contextual everything is like happening in a certain it, it's not happening in a void yeah. some people increase the insecurities in you right like and you are like if you are an anxious if you have an anxious attachment style you are like ah, <laughs> uh, so so like Maybe don't choose those people who are making you feel like this. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's difficult though, like making these rational choices, yeah. right? I mean, because the other one might be so familiar to you yeah. too. Yeah, and the developmental parts really matter in this case, which is something that you can't avoid. Yeah, what are the strategies then to like learn your attachment type so that you you know yourself and what you need from the other? Uh, uh, I mean, it's it's not so difficult to figure it out. Like, I mean, like there are all these like yeah. scales like that can tell you, hey, like it seems like you are more, you know, like you want to be left alone. You are trying to be hyper dependent. Like you can figure it out like through therapy through scales like you can kind of see how like you see yourself how your partner sees you all of that uh, the, the question comes down to whether like you can change it whether you want to change it I mean part of it is like maybe you are very happy being an avoidant person too uh, like I mean the reason that you want to change it is like it's not working yeah, for your experience. current experiment sure. uh, experience right 
So depending on, I mean, it's whether you want to change, whether like to what extent can you change, can you see your triggers, like what makes you more avoidant, yeah. what makes you like suddenly run away from the situation, what makes yep. you feel anxious, can you communicate this anxiety to the other partner in a safe environment, is the other person going to understand you, there are all these like dynamics that are going on there, so uh, I don't know, like I mean, it's going to take first, 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 like take. I mean, first you will need to want to change. Like there is this like stupid joke, you know, like uh, how many, how many uh, psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, yeah, uh, and the story is like only one, but the light bulb wants to change, change but needs to want to change, right? Uh, <laughs> well, but I mean, like, I, I think, like, if you want to change, I, you are going to have that, like, base, like, but, you know, like, you can be more aware and act accordingly, like, you can change your behavior, I don't know if you can change your attachment style for sure, like, you are going to get back to it, like, regress back to it at times of stress, at times of, like, conflict, yeah. so... Okay, um, let's ask a personal question related to this then, because it's super relevant. Um, since you know all these, uh, you, you should kind of be able to judge yourself, I guess. Um, did you and did you decide to change at some point? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a work in progress. <laughs> so, you know, like, I do some things mm -hmm. sometimes about myself yeah. what triggers me what's like problematic what's like working what's good what's bad all of that stuff but you know like changing takes so much effort you need to have that leap of faith mm -hmm. like that like if you change the result is going to be different and even you know like I was talking about this to with the students a few days ago you know like you know some there's sometimes like something that you would like to change maybe you are too shy you want to be more extrovert like you want to be more outgoing or like interact more with people uh, and then like you do this move to be more interactive and like the, 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 the group turns you down like oh, yeah. which acts sort of as a punishment so so you kind of have to get your reinforcement or your feedback from yourself too right like just because like if you want to be outgoing and the group like actually you know like rejected you or told you hey this is not good like you got that feedback you can look at that feedback but you can also take a look at hey i was here i came here so like you can only you know like compare yourself to yourself and all you can do is to try to be you know like act a little more in line with yourself or what you want to be yes. more than yesterday so I try, I don't know if I'm always successful, I, some days I'm worse, you know, yeah. like, I regress back, but, you know, I, 
kind of try to be compassionate to myself too about that. I, I'm not always. Yeah. There is the judging to me, <laughs> like course. talking to myself. Everybody. and Everybody um, But, you know, uh, noticing them does not always automatically guarantee that you are going to change or you are going to resolve it, even if you resolve it actually you realize maybe I shouldn't have resolved it in this way this has other problems there's that too but uh, yeah then you're too outgoing and you're, you're, you don't have any close friends because you know everyone yeah yeah I mean uh, yeah yeah I mean, for like, I, I, I wasn't always, I was never really very shy, but uh, I don't know how that works. But, <laughs> but I mean, like, uh, yeah, I mean, whatever it is that you are trying to change, change is not easy. Like, uh, yeah. knowing the awareness helps a lot. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the change is going to require a lot of like small steps. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you are going to regress back. True. So yeah. you have to keep going somehow. Keep going somehow, yeah. Um, this is the last question. Uh, are there other areas of psychology that you are going to study in the future as well? And if not, um, what are you going to do next in the research? happy with memory like in general yeah, um, I, I, see that. yeah 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 I I do like what I'm doing like I mean one of the things that I want to do is like to be able to contextualize this information obviously like have more naturalistic paradigms yeah. um, and uh, be able to you know understand like how this works in context but I don't see myself going away like I mean uh, moving away from the lab into field studies. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I am the control freak that I am in this situation <laughs> and I think I will keep on going that way. Uh, I want to have more insight as to how this like uh, uh, metacognitive monitoring work, like uh, control work. So like up to now I have been doing a lot of like monitoring studies. How does it work? Yeah. How do we monitor ourselves? What helps? What What is like the current like understanding of our memory and our current understanding of metacognition? The other one that I mean, the the next step is to understand. Okay, if it is this way. What can we do to improve it further? Like, how can we understand ourselves better in terms of memory? But you know, like, uh, what, like, what signs like make us learn better? What you know, like, what are the systematic factors that we can change around? Like, because again, as in any kind of behavior, we are not going to be able to change <laughs> everything. It turns out, like, what if we change? actually helps us like have a better memory performance in general and enhancement of memorization abilities will come from external adjustments or internal ones even if you do the external adjustments which can help the the 
the person still needs to like put in the effort. So yeah. like, uh, I mean, I was thinking of the case of Neuralink, for example. They're mm -hmm. trying to, it's they will try to at some point uh, come up with devices that enhance your memory, memory abilities. So will it? Do you think is it better to do that or change the environment accordingly? Hmm. Based on findings. Uh, I don't know. I mean, one other thing that I am asking is like, when do you need to have your meter memory to be better? Hmm. Like for what instances, right? Yeah. That's going to also be like. So, for example, you know, like. Um, Obviously, you know, like our current educational system, you know, like students come, learn, and then we test them mm -hmm. without them having their books around. Yeah, yeah. Like, it depends on the knowledge skills, like how much they were able to memorize. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like I'm also questioning, okay, is this the best educational system? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, you can also like have all of these materials around because, you know, like oh, in real life we yeah, do have that. You can Google things. <laughs> but like once you have those, can you make the same inferences that you did? Mm -hmm. um, like, I mean, when is it important? Like, when, I mean, if you are, for example, thinking about an eyewitness testimony, like people having the real account of the event is going to be important sure. but like that's going to be important if there is no cameras involved mm -hmm. right like so I mean uh, when do you really need your memory to be better like and like yeah. do you always need it to be better because like one of the theoretical questions about memory is like do we have <laughs> our memory so that like we can have like we can tell each other narratives about <laughs> our past so one of the ideas is that we are not really having this memory like evolve for like episodic incidents is for us to be able to flexibly think in like future simulation the other animals don't have this? No. Wow. No. Right. Like, that's, that's the one thing that the other animals don't have. Wow. So, like, that's one thing to think about. Like, why do we have memory? Like, is it to, like, to be able to, like, remember? I mean, obviously, from an evolutionary perspective, hey, that strawberry was poisonous, let's not eat that. Yeah, yeah. It is important. But it's also important for us to be able to take instances of different events and put them together to like come up with like a tentative story. Like, what if this happens? What am I gonna do? So it's like future simulation, right? Uh, so one function or like I don't know if it's a perk or if it's like the reason that memory evolved, but that's like one of the theories. Like actually says it's all about future simulation and our, our ability to be able to flexibly think and come up with like flexible solutions to future problems. Yeah, I see. I have even further questions, but yeah. <laughs> let's let's like uh, end it here so that our like audience doesn't die from our <laughs> theoretical discussions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoyable to meet you. For me too. Thank you very much. Yeah.